Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, dedicated to being in right relationship with one another, with the community, and with the planet. We come from a long history of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them here. Please say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. At this hour, in small towns and big cities, in single rooms and ornate sanctuaries, many of our sibling Unitarian Universalist congregations are also lighting a flaming chalice. As we light our chalice today, let us remember that we are part of a great community of faith May this dancing flame inspire us to fill our lives with the Unitarian Universalist ideals of love, justice, and truth. Today's call to worship comes from the words of Hans Christian Andersen, a white Danish author best known for his fairy tales. Just living isn't enough, said the butterfly. One must have sunshine, freedom, and a little flower. This congregation has a mission statement that guides our metaphorical feet while we run our metaphorical race. It tells us how to make decisions, what direction we're going in. We wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Here's what we mean by beloved community. Let us read it together. This is from the Martin Luther King Jr. Center. Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood. In the beloved community, international disputes will be resolved by peaceful conflict and reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace with justice will prevail over war and military conflict. Today's reading comes from the words of Major General Smedley Darlington Butler, a white Marine Corps officer who fought in both the Mexican Revolution and World War I. Butler was, at the time of his death, the most decorated Marine in U.S. history. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. Thus, I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place 
for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902-1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras write for American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Our boys were sent off to die with beautiful ideals painted in front of them. No one told them that dollars and cents were the real reason they were marching off to kill and die. Let us join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation where we cry out to God or listen to God as we understand God, or where we listen to our inner wisdom or where we just think our thoughts or watch our breath come in and out of our bodies. We make our spirits as quiet as we can, because in that quiet place, we can feel ourselves becoming clearer, feel ourselves being held in the arms of the great love. In this congregation, as we enter into the wise silence, we remember that tiny noises from children and the noises of life count as silence here.
One more step. We will take one more step till there is peace for us and everyone. We'll take one more step. I'm singing that to myself because, and I'm singing it to you because I just want you to know we do this thing one step at a time. We're two-thirds of the way or so through a series on the elements of baking. And today is sugar. So I wanted to tell you that my mother was a health food nut. And when I was a little girl, she would celebrate with us by giving us celery. She'd be like, oh, you guys were so good today. Let's have some celery. And we'd be like, celery! <laughs> and I was about four, somebody gave me a candy. <laughs> you betrayed me, mother. I remember my oldest son, when he was about two, I gave him his first little tiny piece of a Hershey's Kiss, and I put it in his mouth, and he went, just transformed and enraptured. I knew it was a powerful drug. There was this whole crowd, this herd of little boys who used to play in our yard up and down the trees, around and around the yard. And sometimes they would thunder through the house. And I would say, would you like some tea? They were like, I gave them Earl Grey tea, more milk than tea, really. Lots of sugar. I wanted them to love Earl Grey. Lo, they did felt a little bit like a pusher. (laughs) But I thought it'd be so cool for them to be able to say, yeah, I've been drinking Earl Grey since I was nine. (laughs) Sugar, um, Sugar cane grows wild in Southeast Asia, and the people there have been chewing it, were chewing it for the sweet juice um, since 4,000 BCE. And about 2,000 years ago, um, they began processing and squishing the cane for the juice and then letting it crystallize. Um, In fact, the word for sugar in Sanskrit is the same word for for sand or gravel. It's just um, crystallized sugar. And so the travelers from India, the sailors, began taking it all over the place. The, The production of sugar moved through the... Islamic world over to Spain and in Europe and um, and the Portuguese colonizers explorers we called them in school um, they they took seeds from the sugar cane and and just planted them everywhere they went and decided you know where they might grow well and lo and behold in the Caribbean they grew extraordinarily well and so the islands became a place where sugar cane was grown, but um, 
the work was very intense and backbreaking. And um, I was reading along and I saw this little headline, Sugar Cultivation in the New World. And I thought, oh, good, here we go. But then right underneath it was, see also slavery in the British and French Caribbean. Ugh. I began reading about the trade triangle, which is more like the slave triangle, where the sugar would come from the islands and be shipped to Britain, where they could have it for their tea and cooking and French pastries and whatever. And the merchants would buy things in Great Britain that they would then take to the west coast of Africa and sell uh, and exchange for people that they bought to go work on the plantations because it was too hard for people to do voluntarily. And so many people died trying to do the work from malaria and from the heat. They always just needed more people. So the triangle was established. Sugar to England, to Africa, people to the Caribbean and to Brazil starting in 1502 to Brazil, to the sugar cane plantations for 300 years. Of the 11.2 million African teachers, mothers, medicine people, children captured and enslaved and taken, most of them arrived in Latin America and the Caribbean. About 388,000 arrived in North America. That's a lot of enslaved people to get us our sugar. And there was so much money to be made that most of the colonizing countries had a huge part of their economy supported by sugar money and by the, by the colonial farmers who were raising the sugar cane. And they demanded uh, money and troops from the crown because they were worried that their workers would stage an uprising, that the enslaved people would rise up. They had to have protection. When you enslave people, it makes you have a guilty conscience. If you're human, lucky. Um, they demanded a lot of troops and a lot of money. And so when these colonies, America, started a revolution, they didn't have their whole force of money and troops to spend on this revolution. And so we won, partially because the sugar plantations were demanding so many troops and so much money to keep their uh, rich people safe. Geopolitics shaped by sugar. 
Now, it's still backbreaking work, but it doesn't, as far as we know, enslave people anymore. And so being a, you know, I'm a pretty typical middle-of-the-road Unitarian Universalist, and I think, oh, does this mean I can't have sugar anymore because of its bloody history? And then I remind myself, purity is an illusion. None of us is pure. We're all infected with our history. Sugar is naturally appealing. I mean, apples, we talked about this a while ago. Apples were smart enough to make themselves sweet enough so that people and and animals and birds would take their DNA and spread it all over the globe. The sweeter, the better. The sweeter, the more successful. It's natural. Bees are attracted to the sweet things. It's natural that we should be attracted to sugar, but there's something about human beings that when we find something that we like, we just want more and more and more and more and more of it, more of it. We want it every day, all the time, every day, like little rats pressing that little lever for our whatever they're giving rats these days. So we like pleasure, so we want it all the time, every day. And we like accomplishment. We want it all the time, every day. We like friendship. We can't, can't have enough friends. If you, if you only have two or three, you're not a success on Instagram. And you have love relationships, and you have money, drugs, alcohol. All of these things have a little uh, addictive quality. You put on the red shoes of addiction... And you can't stop dancing till your legs fall off, right? So you're dancing, dancing, dancing to get more, to get more. Sugar is certainly like that. Alcohol is certainly like that. Money is certainly like that. For some people. Some people can kind of take or leave things. Um, But they can't take or leave other things. For me, I confess, it's cheese. I could have cheese for every meal. But there is such a thing as enough. I've had that before. I've had enough. No more cheese. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm done. But money, you know, I, I know, I know a few people who have a lot. And I, um, and we talk about it. And they say, you know, money can't buy happiness, but it's pretty close. It really can by ease. Like if my car breaks down, I just call the office and leave the car, and somebody else brings me another car, and I'm on my way. And, um, and you know, we, we loved having $10 million. We loved it. And, and then we thought maybe $100 million would be more comfortable. And now that we have $100 million, we're thinking maybe a billion would be where we could, you know, maybe... I burst into tears during that conversation. I just said, what's enough? What's enough? What's enough? I mean, how do you, you make a business where you're selling sugar and you're making money, but you could make more money if you just were crueler to the people who worked for you. 
And so you do because capitalism with no rules says that you have to make the most money you can for your shareholders, otherwise you'll get fired. And so that's how you measure your success. And so the Waltons, they don't have shareholders. They just have their family and they have Walmart and they pay their people enough so that they have to use food stamps. And so we are helping the Waltons get rich because we're helping support their workers. And that's not fair. That's greedy. That's no rules capitalism. That's wicked, she thundered from the pulpit. That's wicked. (laughs) What is enough money? What is enough cruelty? Where do you draw the line? And we have, most of us have the money to do and have most of what we want and need. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with sugar. There's something wrong with being out of balance so that there's never enough. That's the sickness. We hoard. Some of us hoard money. Some of us hoard uh, grievances. Some of us can never have enough of a number of things. And I think when we're out of balance, we are suffering and we're causing the suffering of other people. And so I think we can have whatever we need and whatever we want as long as it doesn't enslave people. I could draw the line there. Let's just not enslave people. Which brings me to chocolate. (laughs) And I'm really sorry about this. And I've talked, the first one of these sermons was about heat and transformation. And I'm fixing to turn up the heat a little bit. Because, you know, the State Department said in 2001 that 15,000 children were enslaved in the Cote d'Ivoire working on the cocoa plantations and the coffee plantations and the cotton plantations. And I, I know that in that time, 20 years ago, um, the big chocolate companies stood up and swore on their honor that they would no longer use child labor, especially not enslaved children. They've broken, broken that promise. You have, to, you have to go on the internet and try to find chocolate that doesn't use child labor. And it's hard because the only brand that I had heard of that doesn't use child labor is Newman's own. And I have never seen that in any store. I'd have to buy that from the internet. But there are places that sell fair trade chocolate, but they were not on the list. I don't know what fair trade chocolate means. But I know that chocolate that has been passed through the hands of child slaves doesn't taste good. And I think now that we know that, we can make some noise and make it not be good for the big companies, Mars, Nestle, Hershey. There is nothing wrong with chocolate. There is something wrong with people. And we have to live in that and with that. Because you know what? We are people. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, where am I out of balance? What am I doing where I can't get enough? What is enough for me? Because people apparently have this switch that gets triggered where we put on the red shoes and just dance and dance for that thing. We want more and more and more of it, more concentrated amounts of it. And so what I'm thinking is this. This world is really hard on children. And women. And the powerless. And in this country, we're really hard on brown and black people. And I think we're not the only country where that's true. And so what I would like for us to do, my Unitarian Universalist compadres, is to use all of our privileges. We have, we have some of us have able-bodied privilege, and some of us have uh, white skin privilege, and some of us have citizenship privilege, and some of us have education privilege, and some of us have wealth privilege, and just we can just throw our weight around using our privileges, making noise on behalf of the powerless, and not to rescue them like some saviors coming in from the outside. We will help you. No, we are partnering with the powerless. We partner with the powerless in order to stand by and say, how can we help tell us what we can do? We have these heavy privileges, and we're, we're willing to throw them around somewhat for your sake. And if we did that every other day, that would be very, very sweet. A sweet, sweet world. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Remember the way of the wind and breeze and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.